First Peter 3, we'll begin at verse 13. But we, we continue in our study in, in this particular section of, of Peter's first letter, which deal with the social conduct of a Christian and how Christians are supposed to behave in their different relationships. And we've seen a structure to this, uh, to this section that it begins with instruction for everyone and then instruction with regard to slaves. And then the middle section is the example of Christ. And then it moves to instruction for wives and then husbands. And then finally, what we saw last Sunday, instructions for everyone. We've looked at these five parts over the last five Sundays. But as we begin today, I must say that there is a danger with outlines and with schemes, even with chapters and verses, in that they divide. And while they make passages more manageable, sometimes they prevent or hinder a holistic or even organic reading, and therefore they present real obstacles to understanding what is being said. Just a reminder, uh, I've mentioned this before, that uh, the verse and chapter divisions are not original in Scripture, except for what we find in the book of Psalms. Um, The chapter divisions that we use today were created by Stephen Langdon in 1205. He was a professor in Paris, and later he became the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he used this chapter system for the Vulgate version of the Bible, that is the Bible in Latin. The verses were done uh, over 300 years later by Robert Estienne, also known as Stephanus. He was the first to divide and print the Bible into the numbered verses that we have today. This happened in 1555. Um, Using the chapter divisions that Langdon had done over three centuries before, he then began to break it down into verses. Uh, Much of the work he did, he did while on horseback uh, when riding from Paris to Lyon, which I think explains why there is a a real unevenness oftentimes in the verses that we find. Uh, There's no consistent method, it is argued. Therefore, with this in mind, we should not think that chapter divisions or verse divisions are markers of, oh, here's something new or now we're changing the subject. That does happen from time to time. But not, that's not always the case. However, let me say this. It is very helpful to have chapter and verse divisions so that I can tell you, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to begin at verse 13, as opposed to sort of in the middle there you know, of, of the letter. That's, that's where we'll pick it up at. Using the outline that we've been following, we might get a distorted view, as chapters and verses can do, of this letter from Peter, that we might think that this particular part is only for the slaves and this part is only for the wives. The picture that came to mind was my childhood, raised in the background that I was, that oftentimes the song leader would decide that on the next verse, only the women will sing, okay, all the women now, and then next verse, only the men, and then everyone join in on the chorus. And it's, one almost gets a picture that as this is being read, Okay, this is just for the slaves, folks. Okay, and the rest of you, you don't have to listen. And then when it comes to the wives, okay, you don't, the rest of you don't have to listen. Um, I don't think that that's what Peter is doing here. His instruction is for the entire congregation, is for all believers. It will be near the end of his letter in chapter 5, verse number 12, that Peter tells us the purpose for his writing this letter Um, Let me read it to you. Chapter five, verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Uh, 
Thus, what Peter writes in our passage today, verses 13 through 17, is to counsel and to encourage his audience in their suffering as Christians. In doing this, he ties in what he has said previously in his instruction to slaves and his instruction to wives, which means that these directed sections, if we would call them that, are actually directed to the whole church. That is, I may not be a slave, but I can learn from what Peter is saying in these verses, or I may not be a wife. One may not even be married and yet can learn from what Peter writes in these sections. It is interesting that he chooses slaves and wives whose status in the Roman world were almost equal at certain points. These are the marginalized. These are the lower people in society. And so, as Peter writes to slaves, he tells them that doing good may result in suffering unjustly. It is senseless by human evaluation, but honorable in God's perspective. Today, we will look at the paradox of the suffering righteous, that as oxymoronic as it may sound to our ears, it is nonetheless equivalent to being blessed, a state of blessedness. In the same way, what Peter writes to the wives with regard to their attitude and behavior is now encouraged for all of Christ's followers as we live in a pagan in a disbelieving society. As a Christian wife would with her disbelieving husband, so I should in a disbelieving society. Last Sunday, our passage ended with three verses from Psalm 34. And as we saw, what what Peter does here is tie together three narratives from the Old Testament, from the life of Jesus, and now from the lives of those he is writing to. What we see is that in each case, there is suffering unjustly. The story of David in Psalm 34, and then the story of Jesus, and then Peter's audience. If the storyline, if the narrative is actually from suffering to vindication, which is what we see in Psalm 34 and what we see in the life of Jesus, then the hostility that Peter's readers are experiencing can hardly be the whole story. This cannot be the end of the story. In many ways, it's not even the real story. I always hesitate to make musical allusions because I'm out of my depth, I know, with this congregation. But I remember when I took a a semester of classical guitar over at L.A. City College, and one of the things the professor said was that the way that music is written, technically, guitarists don't play that way because when you... When you strum a string, it continues to vibrate well into the next measure. It doesn't just stop. In the same way, Peter has, if you wish, strummed on Psalm 34 in verses 9, 10, and 11. I'm sorry, in 10, 11, and 12. But in fact, the vibrations continue into our passage today. It isn't as though, okay, I'm done with Psalm 34, let's move on to something else. The echoes are still there. Listen, if you would, as I read verses 13 through 17. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. 
keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Just quickly as we begin, you may notice the tie-ins. In verse number 12, we read of those who do evil. Now in verse number 13, those who are going to harm you. In verse number 10, speaks of the one who would love life and see good days. Verse 13, you are eager to do good. Integrity of speech is mentioned in verse number 10. Must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. And now it is clarified in verse number 15 in terms of meek and reverent witness. There's something else, and that is the Lord of Psalm 34 is now identified unmistakably as Jesus Christ. In verse number 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Verse 15, in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. The connection between Psalm 34 and our entire passage is important. By the way, remember that the verse divisions are artificial. So, We might be surprised, oh, I thought we were done with that at the end of verse number 12, but in fact, the thought continues. Peter does two things. First of all, he identifies his readers with or as the suffering righteous in the psalm, in Psalm 34. And in doing this, he encourages them, that's why he's written this letter, to persist, to remain constant as they engage the world at large. They are to be those who embody goodness, not only internally in their character, but externally in their practices. Having done that, Peter must do something else. And the second thing he does is he puts their situation and their experience into a divine perspective, not a human perspective. Because I think the question must have come up. If you look at Psalm 34, it says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If that's true, then why do the righteous suffer? That doesn't make sense. If God is watching after the righteous, and if he is against those who do evil, if I suffer, it would seem that something is wrong. There are at least two possibilities, I think, that most people think of. Either Peter's readers are actually quite wicked, and that's why they are suffering what they are. And no doubt that has occurred to some of them. We talked about that in Sunday school, how that oftentimes our failures are what come to mind. we're, We're very aware of our failings. So perhaps they think, that's why I'm suffering, because I've done something wrong. Or the alternative is that God cannot or God will not protect his people. I would, I would suggest to you that both of these possibilities are frightening. They're devastating. Peter presents a third option. It doesn't have to be either or. There is a third way. And this third way is revealed in the coming of Jesus into the world. It is spelled out in verse 13, and then the first part of verse 14, And then verse 17, uh, I will argue that what we find in 14b, 15 and 16 is not a parenthesis, but sort of inserted there. But 17 actually goes with what is in 13 and 14. What we find in verses 13 and 14, the first part, almost sound like a proverb. They sort of have a proverbial character to them. But there is something that is wrong. 
as is in the case in the Beatitudes. See, a proverb, and what we find in the book of Proverbs, um, gets its strength, its force from the fact that it seems to be very common sense. One could almost put at the beginning of every proverb in the book of Proverbs, as you all know, or as you have observed, that this is just common sense. If you've lived very long in the world, you see that this is the way things are. For example, what goes up must come down. We could make that a proverb and you could say, as you all know. But what we see here in verse 13 and 14, and what we hear in the Beatitudes, turns the observed world upside down. It is something that we would not know apart from the grace of God. It is contrary to what we would think. You may remember how the Beatitudes are stated. Blessed are, and then we have the category. When one hears the words, and I heard someone mention this before, that the very first time Jesus said these words, one can almost imagine that the audience is ready to fill in the blank. Blessed are. But what Jesus puts in the blank is not what most people, in fact, maybe what many Christians would not put in the blank. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, some of these we might say make sense or common sense, like blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart. Blessed is a peacemaker. But what we find at the end, blessed are you when people insult you, is what we hear Peter saying in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. What Jesus does and what Peter is doing here turns conventional wisdom on its head. How can it be that those who do good suffer? That doesn't make sense. And who would ever confuse the state of suffering with the state of blessedness? It doesn't make sense. What Peter would tell us is what seems to be the case is in fact not the case. Those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ find at the center of their being a recalibration of the universe. That things are not always as they seem to be. One that we find already in the Old Testament is the tradition of the suffering righteous. Well, we've seen that in the Old Testament. Well, when Jesus comes into the world, in a sense, he puts his stamp on it and says, this is valid. This is the way things are. And we see it in his life, death and resurrection. So we shouldn't imagine that Peter is going to tell us that those who do good are unlikely to rock the boat. If you do good, people are going to like you. They're going to think that you're a great person. They're not going to be angry with you. Peter tells us the opposite. It's precisely by doing good that the righteous attract unwanted attention. Because their behavior portrays them as moving against the grain of society. Society is going in a particular way 
And those who follow Christ are going in the opposite direction. And you can imagine if you're going down a one-way street the wrong way, then you will, in fact, attract a lot of attention. In following the example of Jesus, the believer will find himself or herself inviting slander, slander, defamation, malice, and hostility. If you read the Old Testament, this should not be surprising. We have story after story of the suffering righteous. Think of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, and then falsely accused by his master's wife when he refused her advances. He was imprisoned and forgotten by Pharaoh's butler after having interpreted his dream. And then there is David, who wrote Psalm 34. The slayer of Goliath is forced to run for his life due to Saul's jealousy. And at times, as in Psalm 34, has to feign insanity. He has to pretend to be crazy to survive. Jeremiah, whom we studied some years ago, prophesied against Judah and was, among other things, thrown into a cistern that didn't have water but had mud. Daniel, like Joseph, was an interpreter of dreams. A man known for his wise counsel was thrown in among lions for worshiping God. And there are others, I would suggest, more than we realize. Just a parenthesis here. In his second epistle, which the Lord willing we will look at after 1 Peter, Peter writes this in chapter 2. Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. I don't know about you, if you know the Old Testament at all, righteous is not the first word that comes to mind when I think of Lot. And neither is suffering. A suffering righteous man who is daily tormented by the wickedness that he sees in Sodom and Gomorrah. But this is what Peter sees. This is the pattern we find in the Old Testament. And then it is finally stamped with the approval by the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, he continues in verse number 9 in 2 Peter 2. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. There it is in the Old Testament. Temporary suffering should not be confused with ultimate harm. When seen in the grand scheme of things, what I may be experiencing right now is temporary. It is not who I am. It should not define me. This is not to say that suffering is nothing. This is not to say that suffering is not real or painful. Obviously it is. But what Peter wants to make clear is this. That this particular chapter of my life is not the end of the story. This is not the final chapter of my life's story. And whatever suffering I may be going through now is a part of God's grand story and grand scheme for human history. We may be reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We should be reminded, however, that... It's not merely the stories of the suffering righteous from the Old Testament. We have the story of Jesus. 
in chapter 1, verse 3, this is right at the beginning of the letter, Peter writes, In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is resurrection that is God's vindication of the suffering righteous. That says, yes, you are my child. And so now when we go back to verse number 14 and we read, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Perhaps we understand it a bit better at this point. And then in verse number 17, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Just, just a word here about the phrase, if it is God's will. Peter is not saying in this letter, let's not misunderstand him, he is not saying that all Christians will suffer. Nor is he saying that all Christians must suffer. That if, you, if there's no suffering in your life, you need to go out and find some suffering. Because if you're a Christian, this is part of who you are. That, that is not what he is saying. What he is saying to his readers is that present suffering does not produce ultimate harm. It does not define me for eternity. This is but a small part of my life. Rather, suffering in the present qualifies one to be called blessed, to be in the state of blessedness. It's far better than the alternative. The alternative is to be like the wicked. And they, don't, they may not suffer now, but they will suffer eternally. better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. What is required of Peter's readers, and that includes us, are patterns of thought that reflect God's thoughts and God's ways, which can, in fact, be quite counterintuitive. In a world in which people often speak of that which is counterintuitive, the suffering righteous as blessed is certainly counterintuitive. So what Peter does in verses 14b through 16, this it's not a parenthesis, but it's sort of inserted there, is to say what those patterns of thoughts should be. And what he starts with is, do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. What does it mean to set apart Christ as Lord? The ESV has, in your hearts, honor Christ as the Christ the Lord as holy. The King James has sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does this mean? Let me suggest four things to consider. First of all, in the Bible, rarely it is used, as in our text, do we find the word sanctify being used of us toward God. It's usually the other way around, that God sanctifies things. God makes things holy. God sets things apart. When we sanctify God, what we are doing is saying that God is who he says he is. And in this verse, Peter says that Christ is Lord means Jesus Christ is God. Um, this is so familiar to us. We say, well, of course, Jesus is God. He's the second member of the Trinity. We're so familiar with this. But stop and think a minute. How is Jesus portrayed in this letter? As the living stone rejected by men, as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. 
The pattern we find in the Old Testament is found in the life of Jesus. The rejected righteous, the suffering righteous, and he is God. I think sometimes we will opt for one over the other, but it is really quite remarkable that God comes into the world and he suffers as a righteous man. Just as his people did in the Old Testament. He is God. So we are to set him apart. We are to sanctify him as holy. The suffering servant is to be seen as holy. He is to be honored as holy. The second thing is that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Hallowed be your name. Uh, Your kingdom come, your will be done. And we must ask ourselves, how is God's name hallowed? It is by his kingdom coming. And how is this to happen? Well, I would suggest that Peter has told us earlier in this letter, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Which leads to the third thing to consider. The contrast between setting Christ apart as holy, if we don't do that, then what will we do? We will, in fact, be afraid. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but set Christ apart as Lord. This quote is actually from Isaiah chapter 8. Your, your translation may have a footnote at the bottom telling you that. But let me read to you a part of Isaiah 8. Isaiah writes, The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of his people. He said, Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary for both houses of Israel, and he will be a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. From the time of Adam and Eve, from the time they ate from the tree, Unhealthy fear has been a part of our human constitution. When Adam hears the voice of the Lord in the garden, he hides, and when asked why, he answers, I was afraid. Peter has written about fear earlier in this letter, and what we've come to see is this. We are only to fear God. He alone is owed fear and reverent fear. We are to honor the king, but we are to fear God. Earlier in chapter 1, he said, Since you have a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Fear is to be our response to God. It is not to be our response to the world around us. So either we will have one of two lords. Either we will set apart Christ as Lord and not fear the world. Or we will fear the world, and that means the world is Lord. The Lord, or the world calls the shots, because the world is the one that we fear. It's either or. Either honor him or fear the world. You can't do both. The fourth thing that I would have you consider is that the call to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts is fleshed out in verse number 16. Good conscience and good conduct. Look at verse 16. 
keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And here we see sort of interwoven one's heart, one's feelings and loyalties, one's conscience, a moral awareness, and one's behavior, way of life and conduct. Your behavior, your good behavior in Christ, we read in verse 16. So who we are is tied to what we do. We can only do what we are, and this we cannot help but do. This is from a commentator on 1 Peter. And then this leads us to perhaps one of the most familiar of these verses. And back in verse number 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. When we looked at the section dealing with wives with disbelieving husbands, I proposed that it might seem strange to some because Peter called on them to win over their disbelieving husbands without words. They may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. And then we come to verse number 15. Always be prepared to give an answer. I would suggest that the problem is ours and not Peter's. Because I think Peter does not have in mind what we think he has in mind. The word apologetics comes from the word he uses here for answer, apologia. For us, when we hear the word apologetics, we usually think of uh, a reasoning, a reasoned presentation or argument of the gospel to support the truth of the Christian faith. That is, we've sort of marshaled our, our arguments here and we're ready to give a defense of the Christian faith. I don't think that this is necessarily what Peter has in mind. I think what Peter has in mind is living our lives in the footsteps of Jesus. He points to the narrative of our, uh, in our lives of the way of Christ through suffering and death to resurrection and glory. We are to have a narration in our lives that is an articulation which reflects the character of Christ, meekness and reverence. I think because of Paul in Acts, you know, when he's before the Sanhedrin, when he's before Festus and Agrippa, we have in mind this idea that as a Christian, when we come to verse number 15, I need to be ready to have a really strong argumentation to defend the Christian faith. Um, I think Peter would say you need to work on meekness and reverence. Meekness is the quality of not being overly impressed by your own sense or one's self-importance. One should not think that one is more important than one is. Instead, we should commit ourselves to the justice of God. We saw this as much in chapter 2, where Jesus did not answer but entrusted himself to God. Humility is something that Peter will deal with later in chapter 5. Reverence speaks of our basic attitude toward God. We are not to be afraid. We are not to be horrified of our antagonists, those who would stand against us. Do not fear what they fear, he says, and do not be frightened. How we carry ourselves in the world in relation to disbelievers to those who are antagonistic to the gospel should be determined by how 
we think of Christ. If we see him as the suffering righteous, we see the pattern in the Old Testament, as we see him as the stone that is rejected, then perhaps the light will go off in our heads and we realize that, in fact, may be the narrative that I'm called to live. Rather than to think, I will get these people into the kingdom, I've got a great argument here, I've got a great presentation of the gospel, and this will persuade people and they'll become Christians. I think what Peter is saying, actually, in verse number 15, is we are to live, when God, when God calls us to it, to live lives of suffering with meekness and reverence. To be willing to put up with persecution. Why, why are you putting up with persecution? What is the reason? What do you hope? What is your hope in life? Granted, words may be used at that point. But I believe that the church's example has been to live rather than to speak. As God's people today, we need to understand that it didn't begin with us. And we are not unique. We're not special. We are, in fact, part of a long narrative, of a long tradition that began in the Old Covenant. We see it in Jesus as God comes into the world, and now that tradition continues with us. And that tradition is that sometimes things may not be as we think they should be. That we may suffer for doing what is right. A person may do the right thing and lose his or her job for doing what is right. That doesn't make sense. Or we may suffer and we wonder, what have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? And then we become afraid. Peter tells us that we are not to be afraid. That we are in fact part of this long tradition. And we are to think as God thinks, not as the world thinks. And so don't, don't fear what they fear. If there is an example of the righteous suffering in the Old Testament, the example that comes to mind is Job. And I think for me, the most significant verse in Job is when he says, that which I have feared has happened. And I think a lot of people read that and they're like, oh, Job is sad because he lost his family. That's what he was afraid. Or he was afraid of losing all his possessions. Or he was afraid of losing his health. Read the book of Job. That's not what he was afraid of. What he was afraid of was the God he'd been worshiping all these years was not the God he thought he was. That somehow God had become mean and unrighteous and cruel. That's what Job was afraid of. And I think Peter's readers might have had the same fear. Either they had done something wrong or God wasn't who they thought he was. Peter says no. No. If this is the calling God has given you and you suffer for doing what is good, then you are blessed. This is the pattern we see ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. All things being equal, I'd rather not suffer. I don't know about you. It's, 
not even the top 100 things I want to do with my life. And I do find the tendency within myself whenever, not that I've suffered, but whenever things don't go well and suddenly it gets inflated to suffering, immediately a checklist goes off in my mind. What did I do wrong that God is hitting me over the head? Is God angry with me? And if it goes on long enough and deeply enough, the thought, has God abandoned me? We have the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Peter tells his readers, this, is, this may be your calling for now, but don't lose hope. Don't be afraid. You are walking in the steps of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, in many ways, in, in this country, suffering is so foreign to us, at least suffering for the sake of the gospel. But your people throughout history, in different places, have suffered. And it is true that when we go through difficult times, we may become fearful. It may not even be difficult times like Peter. It might be a young maid and it throws us off. And we think the way the world does. Help us to see from this passage, from all of Scripture, that your ways are not our ways. While we would not think of suffering as being blessed, you do. You sent your son and he came and lived among us and he suffered. And you raised him from the dead. Help us by your grace to look to you. And not to ourselves. We are sinners. But if that becomes the focus of our, of our scrutiny, then we will lose all hope. How can there be hope for us? But if we look to you, if we set apart the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord in our hearts, by your grace we will not fear and we will trust you. We thank you for your word, Father, and for this amazing passage. May your spirit bring it home to our hearts. May we meditate on it in the days to come. Father, as far as we know, today is Hillary's last Sunday with us. As she leaves us, we ask your grace, your spirit would go with her, guide her and direct her, protect her and keep her from harm. Help her as she continues to grow and to learn. May people see the Lord Jesus Christ in her. And now as we leave this place today, may your spirit go with us. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.